Hello, welcome to a special edition of the Science Shambles podcast. We recorded this live at Manchester University on International Women's Day this year as part of a panel we did there uh, tying in with the Cosmic Superheroes photography exhibition that we staged last year. Four of the people featured in that exhibition were on the panel, Helen Chersky, Susie Gage, Sheena Cruikshank and Ginny Smith. Uh, All the panellists talk about their photo that is in the exhibition, so if you're not familiar with that, you can go and see all the images so you get what they're talking about at cosmicshambles.com slash superheroes. You can see all the images there as well as interviews with uh, everyone involved in the exhibition, uh, which also included Josie Long and Grace Petrie and Katie Brand and Selena Godden, Lucy Green, lots of other people. Check that out. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles to support everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network. Thanks to the Faculty of Biology, Medicine and Health at the University of Manchester who invited us to come up and do this event. Please do spread the word of Science Shambles as well. Use the hashtag Science Shambles on Twitter. Uh, Review five-star reviews and comments and stuff on Apple Podcasts. And it seems appropriate to remind you that since this episode was recorded in Manchester, we will be in Manchester, or Salford to be uh, perfectly accurate, later this year with Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People for the first time. We've been doing the show for over a decade in London, our big mashup of science and comedy and music. We'll be doing four nights uh, at King's Place in London, plus a family matinee, and also two nights at the Lowry. You can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to get all the details about that and tickets and everything else. And now just before we move on to the episode, uh, a quick note that towards the end of this episode, uh, sort of near the start of the Q&A, you might hear a kind of weird beeping Uh, What that was, was a security guard uh, at the venue who just decided that midway through a panel was the optimum time to start testing the smoke detectors. And it took us a few minutes to uh, suggest that perhaps there was a better time to do this. No doubt important procedure, but, you know, time and place. So that's what that is. Uh, Don't think you're going mad or your speakers have gone a bit potty. It's just a smoke detector. Hope you enjoy the episode. Here is Helen. around women in science is that it keeps changing and actually and I think that's a really positive thing because we we get past the basic issues of you know do we need to talk about women in science I think we've ticked that box good move on and 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 as we go on we're we're getting to more subtle issues and getting deeper down into maybe what the problems are and where it really comes from and now we're getting to the hard bit in a lot of ways it's been brilliant today on Twitter um, and in lots of other forums to see all this enthusiasm for International Women's Day Um, But it's also uncovering that some of the easy things, they've been done, good, and now we're getting to the things that are hard and they're nuanced and they're subtle 
and um, they are going to be more difficult to do. And the other thing I'd like to say just up front is that obviously, you know, today's International Women's Day, we are all women on stage, so we'd like to talk about women. However, the biggest thing I think that remains in this debate is that we need to be talking about diversity and not women. It's not acceptable anymore to talk about um, to talk as though lack of women in science was the only problem. We know there are much wider issues to do with diversity, to do with disability, with sexuality, um, to do with ethnicity, and it is not acceptable to just sort of dismiss them and say, oh, well, that's another problem. And I have been told that. I have been told by people who organise events that, oh, no, we're doing a women's event, uh, and it's not on. So, with that minor rant out of the way, uh, we have uh, four, four of us, we're all, we're all included in this, uh, um, Ginny and Susie and Sheena, and we've all got different perspectives. Uh, three of us are academics, Ginny is a science communicator, so I should tell you who everyone is, they're, they're going to introduce themselves. Um, but Ginny is a, she will see that she does a lot on the Co Cosmic Shambles Network, uh, and talks about science in lots of different events. Um, Susie, I will I'll let you, and she's going to explain her superhero, but just before we get to Judy's superhero, um, and Susie Gage is uh, an a psychologist and epidemiologist at uh, Liverpool, right? Now, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Sheena, you probably know, because she's here, Professor of Biomedical Science and Public Engagement. Uh, and I'm Dr. Helen Chersky, I'm based at University College London, and I'm a physicist. So, uh, we, Trent is desperately trying to keep up with this superhero. But I was supposed to go first, so this, this, is, this is my superhero. And what, this was a lovely project to do because uh, Cosmic Shambles came to us and said, we've got a bit of money left over from something else, we want to do something good. So we thought we'd let you all reinvent superheroes. So this wasn't intended to be to be painting ourselves in the image of somebody else's superhero. This was like, if we could invent the superhero that we wanted to be, that represented our professional life, uh, and maybe our personal life as well, then this was gonna be it. And so this was mine, and um, I, I, none of us, I don't think, came up with a name for their superhero. Um, I, but this is an ocean superhero, that's the important bit. And I, I have a, a stuffed plush toy octopus, it comes with me. And the turtle and the, the stingray, those are, all, those are all real things that I have. Because I really do care about, I'm a physicist, but I study the physics of the ocean, and so, so I've got this stuff. All the equations are uh, things that I use to study the physics of the ocean, those are real practical equations for me. And then, I, I'm not sure whether I'm flying or swimming. Um, it did take a lot of jumping. I, will, I, I don't, uh, we haven't got, I don't think, somewhere Trent Plainsy has the photos um, behind the scenes of, because obviously this is a green screen, of me jumping into a superhero pose. And I, um, the ones I remember are certainly entertaining because it turns out I can't actually fly. So it's very disappointing to me. Um, but the point of this superhero is, is that nobody talks about the oceans enough. It's a bee in my bonnet. And I wanted to show at least a little bit of the variety and the beauty of what's in the ocean. Um, and, and this idea that it is being in the ocean is the closest any of us will come to weightlessness without going to the International Space Station. Uh, and so my jumping was a feeble attempt to <laughs> recreate that in a studio. So that's my superhero. Uh, so next, Sheena, tell us about yours. Right, so I work um, with infectious diseases a lot, so I get to play with um, parasites um, and look at the kind of little intricate immune cells and the way they talk to the parasites. And some of the parasites are quite big, and I do take some of them around with me. That's actually a pot of 
roundworm. Um, those are horse roundworm, they're the same size as the human version, which is about yay big. So just, just imagine a few of those in your gut. But I also work with microscopic parasites like Toxoplasma that are inside cells. So I spend a lot of time staring down a microscope. And what I thought would be really cool is if I actually just had a microscope for eyes instead, <laughs> so that I wouldn't have to go like this all the time. So you can see my microscopic eye, which is enabling me to see, obviously in real time, immune cells talking to parasites and microbes. And then the other thing that I thought was, which, you know, I work, I work with all these infections, they're pretty horrible, I spend a lot of time filling in kind of cosh forms and risk assessments to be able to do it. So actually, wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to do that and didn't have to panic about needing vaccinations and things. So I'm actually, you can't see it very well in this light, but I'm actually wearing a cloak of protection. So this is stopping any infections coming near me without the need to, to wear the usual rather uncool full protective um, clothing, which makes you look like a large condom, if you will. <laughs> um, and I've also got robot hands, because we do a lot of this, but that's a pet, if you don't use them, and it involves doing this repeatedly. So, do, have any, are any even in the lab, has anybody used a pipette? Any hands up? So, a few of you, you get sore thumbs, don't you? Yeah, so imagine robot hands, you like, I mean, you do, the, you do the fastest ever experiments, so that is my superpowers. Brilliant. All right, so next up, I'm going to see who comes up next. Susie, Susie, tell us about yours. Yeah, so this was a very, very last-minute superhero idea. We had a plan that I was going to be... Uh, my superpower was that I had the data for thousands of people on my laptop, which meant that I could do... Uh, lots of exciting work in my pyjamas, basically. So I was going to be wrapped in a big duvet that was covered in the statistical software that I use. Uh, unfortunately, um, due to the delights of a certain uh, delivery company who will remain unnamed, I'm sure you can guess, it could have been any of them, <laughs> um, that idea had to be scrapped. And so uh, last minute I thought, hang on, I, I have gone to parties as, dressed as a punk before and made a dress out of a bin bag, so what can I do that will work that? But um, I should tell you a little bit about the type of research that I do. So I'm a psychologist and an epidemiologist. An epidemiologist is someone who is interested in kind of population level health. So I look at spreadsheets of ones and zeros for the most part, and I think my superpower here was going to be that I can, I can turn those ones and zeros into meaningful data, I can turn them into graphs, I can turn them into understanding associations. So the work that I do is really interested in understanding the links between recreational drug use and mental health. And to do this we need really large data sets where we've collected data on, on people's mental health and on the substances people use. But here's where I am, I think, the only person who also had a super villain in their photo. And um, both of these people are me, which some of my closest friends didn't actually realise that. But both of those are me. And uh, the super villain is this idea of confounding. So I'm sure that you realise that the pe people who use, for example, cannabis are different from people who don't use cannabis in lots of ways other than just their cannabis use. So if you just look at the association between cannabis use and mental health, 
You might see a link, but actually that doesn't mean that cannabis is causing that link. There could be all sorts of other things that people who use cannabis are also likely to be different from people who don't use cannabis. And it could be any one of those things that's actually causing this link with poor mental health. So the thing that I'm really interested in is kind of untangling these links and thinking about what are the other things that might be impacting this association. So kind of a good example of confounding that I that I like is this idea that um, ice cream sales are linked to incidences of skin cancer. But it's not ice cream causing <laughs> skin cancer. Um, does anyone want to hazard a guess at what, why this might be a link? <laughs> what a, the confounder might be? Sunshine. Sunshine, exactly. So this uh, is meant to be me fighting against confounding via the medium of a sort of cosmic game of Scrabble, I guess. I mean, we did come up with this at about 11pm the night before we were going to be doing the shoot at 9am. So, yeah, thankfully, we could buy some bin bags and a bit of uh, tin foil. And the duvet still exists. The duvet, the duvet does duvet exist. It's now on my spare bed. <laughs> <laughs> OK, last not, but not least, Ginny. Um, so my background is neuroscience and psychology, so a lot of what I do now is writing about the brain, talking about the brain, I go into schools and do shows, that kind of thing. So I was thinking, well, what kind of brain-related superpowers could we have? And probably the thing that comes up most often um, when I'm asking kids for questions about the brain, there are a few different things that come up, but pretty much always someone asks about mind control. Is there any way that you can control someone else's brain? Um, and actually the answer is yes. Unfortunately not like this. Well, <laughs> unfortunately or fortunately. So this was my idea that I could perhaps control someone's brain with my brain. That's Trent sitting there being controlled by my mind power. Um, so actually there are techniques now that we can start to kind of play with other people's brains, which is kind of cool, um, so, <laughs> and kind of scary in a way. But um, It worries me because it sounds like you know something the rest of the room doesn't. <laughs> you can control minds. The rest of us don't I know how to do I personally don't have the machinery. But no, so there's something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is putting a small magnetic pulse on the outside of someone's skull, so they can be awake, alert, you know, you don't have to actually have access to their brain. You just have this machine right by their head. Um, and you put a small electrical uh, magnetic pulse, and that interferes with the electrical signals that the brain naturally produces and can actually change the way they're behaving. Um, so actually at one of the... Uh, it was a, um, a Royal Institution Christmas lectures. Was it last year or the year before? Uh, it was a year and, yeah, a year and a half ago. Yeah, half so, ago. so not last so Christmas, the one before. Um, Sophie Scott did it to Robin Ince and got him to stop talking, which if you've ever heard Robin Ince, met Robin Ince, you'll know is quite a feat. Although um, he didn't stop him talking very long because he came along to join in with yeah. the show the rest of us were doing after, and then he wouldn't shut up. <laughs> so that's the good news, that there's no way someone can do this without you knowing, and it's very short-lasting. You have to have the machine literally right by your head, and it only works while the pulse is going on. So we could shut him up briefly, but as soon as we turned off the machine, it started again. But that's where the kind of idea for my um, superhero came from. And actually, it was quite interesting hearing you talk about supervillains, because I played around with whether I should make her a superhero or a supervillain, because this is one of those powers that you could definitely use for good or you could use for evil. Um, but actually, I think that's quite interesting and quite a good point, because there's a lot of issues with ethics in, I think, probably psychology, neuroscience, anything that does research on humans. Um, and this is very much a power that would 
yeah, the way you use it would be very important, whether it would be for good or for evil. And allegedly, the pa- one of the parasites we study, toxoplasma, yes. is, is said to affect brain behaviour in order to help us get eaten by cats. So the question is, will any of these parasites improve behaviour when it comes to equality and diversity? <laughs> very nice. nice. Very so nice. One of the I hear quite a lot when I discuss this, when we're discussing it, and we, we've all heard it, I'm sure, is that people say, oh, haven't we dealt with all of that? Don't you know all this, this women, we're all equal now, right? We don't need to worry about it anymore. And just to demonstrate how not true this is, um, I want to show you something that my sister texted me earlier today. Now, she works in a uh, tech company, FinTech, and one of the men in her their work WhatsApp group was like, oh, it's International Women's Day. I am going to send a thing out to all the women for International Women's Day. And this is what it was. Mm-hmm. Now, Ugh. let's have a look at this. So, for, for the benefit of the podcast audience, it's, it's a... It's a um, a little box, it says International Women's Day on the left-hand side. On the right, it's got a pink, quite glamorous woman with very prominent eyelashes. And it's got all these words. And you go, well, it's pink, but maybe the words are all right. And then we start reading the words. And the words are sweet, elegance, wife, emotion. What else is on there? Wishful. Um, there's a lot of words which are sensitive. Yeah. How? And you just, like, warm, tender, just, can I stop cringing now, please? Because this is the problem, right? That an educated um, man in a finance company who works in a, in a workplace which is, by all accounts, reasonably equal on the surface, um, thinks it's, that this is a compliment to women, that this is what International Women's Day is all about, that it's like, oh, we're going to give some saccharine compliments and we're going to pat you on the head and say, aren't you nice little women? Um, and this, apparently, um, so I said to my sister, what happened next? And she said, he was educated. <laughs> uh, I don't think he's going to do it again. But the point is that it's very easy to think, you know, we hear headlines, we, we are present in these discussions, right? There is an International Women's Day. And so it's easy to think that the, the problem is dealt with, that we see equality. And, and the problem is it isn't, that the surface things might look more equal. We have laws that say, you know, things should be equal. But in practice, the culture doesn't work like that. And, and so that's, this is the sort, you can take it down now, Trent, because I don't want to look at it anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is the sort of thing that I think we need to unpick, that, that the rules say things should be equal, and yet they are not. Um, so, so, you know, so we're going to cover a range of things here. We obviously all work in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics in different areas of it. And even though most of us are academics, obviously this discussion includes a lot of, you know, there are plenty of engineers, there are scientists who are researchers in non, you know, institutions that aren't universities. There's a huge range of things to do with STEM that, that we include in this conversation. Um, but I thought maybe I'd just start by, it's always good to find out what people's bees in their bonnets are. So, um, bees in bonnets. Sheena, you've got a bee in your bonnet. Yeah, I tweeted about it this morning, and I think I tweeted about it at the start of the week, so I'm clearly, I'm clearly bothered. And I think it's this, what we have in academia, and a lot of industries is at the moment, is that, that we're, certainly in the biological area, we may have parity at the level of undergraduate and maybe even postgraduate, and then the number of senior women drops and drops and drops and drops till you have relatively few at the professorial 
levels or the top levels of, of business or whatever field it might be. And when they look at sort of the way that we're recognized, certainly in academia, it's, it's very rigid. So the way that you become a principal investigator, the way you get on this ladder in the first place, seems to be completely due to um, the biggest factors for predicting your success are whether you're a man, so you're more likely already if you're a man, so that's a tick box already, and if you've got articles in journals that are perceived to be high impact. So it's not number of citations, it's whether they're perceived to be high impact. Now, okay, uh, research is part of our job, but it's not the only part of our job. But then if you unpick that area around just the journals, if you look at the journal publication rate, you're more likely to get into those high impact journals if you're a man. And men are more likely to cite each other. So you're looking at a situation that unfortunately is really biasing towards men. And I don't think that that's fair and that's right. And I would like to see more equality sort of at the so top how do you levels. Think, it's, 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 I think that problem, you can, you can back that up with a lot of statistics mm. now, but how, how do you go about changing that, do you think? I think there was a really uh, nice experiment which has happened in Ireland, which is a more positive take, where they've looked at the funding. So again, if you're male um, and of a sort of Caucasian ethnicity, you're more likely to get funded by the, the funders. They've looked at that. Um, and what they did is there was a sort of funding stream that looked at two aspects. It looked at the science and it looked at the CV. Now, when they looked at both, you were more likely to get funded if you were a man. And the funding success rate was around 25-30% for women. Um, when they took that out, they took out the CV completely. So they were only assessing on the quality of science the funding rate for women started to go up and now it's actually slightly higher than men. So I think that tells you that when we can't have bias, when we can't see who we're assessing, we're only looking at the quality of the science, we won't do it anymore. And I think that, that could be one of the Which ways. Which in a way is it's kind of a sad thing because you're admitting that people can't be unbiased or can't be trusted to at least try and be unbiased, but you can take the information away from yeah. them and not give them the choice. Um, fair enough. Susie, you had more positive things to say about uh, Yes, although, although I do want to slightly piggyback on what Sheena was just saying and, and say that even in fields like psychology, where I, I work in a psychology department, I've been in other psychology departments around the country, and one of the things that's quite striking is just how sort of overrepresented women are at undergraduate level. Mm. I think when I, so when I did my undergraduate, I think, which was at UCL, I think it was 90% women. On that course, and it, I don't it's think psychology, psychology yes, and I don't think it's very different these days either. But in every department where I've worked, the number of female psychology professors has been one. So the department where I work now, a second uh, woman has just been promoted to professor, so there's now two. Um, if you want to guess how many male professors there are, it's more than two. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but it, it's, re it's something that, I think it happens across all fields, but even in something that's so heavily female-dominated at undergraduate level, still when you get to the very top, that has completely turned on its head and the, the percentages have kind of flipped. So there is something, something that's making it harder for women to stay in academia or progress to the highest levels anyway, perhaps there's a barrier that means it's harder for women to get beyond something like senior lecturer or reader kind of level. And do you have a view on what, because there's two, you, you, broadly you can think of two reasons that might be, right? One might be that 
um, women have better things to do than go into that system. And one might be that the system does not choose them. Yeah. Is, have you got a feel for which way it works in this case? Um, I mean, I think in all likelihood, like lots of most complex things, it's probably a combination of both. I think there are certainly things that make it less appealing for women to stay than it is for men to stay. And they think, well, I could spend my time working in this really difficult environment that isn't necessarily set out to suit me, or I could move to a job where I've got more kind of job security. Certainly, for when you first start out in your academic career, you have to work on short-term contracts for years. When you do your PhD, you've probably got very little money, and all of this kind of happens at times when women are kind of at reproductive age, for want of a better word. And I don't think... It's not just an issue about, about having children, although obviously that's a whole other story that we could go into about how things are kind of very much framed towards women being carers. Um, but that's true of, of not just of children, but of, of caring for family in, in more general terms. So I think there's definitely that kind of aspect that it is more difficult. Um, but thinking about what you were saying about people applying for grants as well, I think there have been studies that done that have found that women tend to apply for less money than men. And there could be a couple of reasons for that. It could be that there's sort of less confidence to go for big grants, or it could be that women are more like better at budgeting in terms of like <laughs> I've seen I've seen these these kind of suggestions that men ask for it on average about ten percent more money on a kind of roughly equivalent grant, and maybe women shouldn't be aiming to be more like men, but men should actually be kind of reining it in a little bit and anecdotally i definitely so for those who you know the academic system may not be as familiar especially the podcast audience as it is to anyone in this room but when academics are asking for grants or applying for grants there's no actual limit on the number of grants they can apply for so you can have 20 percent of your time on seven different grants and no one checks that yeah. <laughs> and it's noticeable that the, the academics that have more than 100% of their time allocated to different grants are almost always men, but then there aren't very many women in the system, so maybe we don't, maybe there's not, well, it's not, it's not statistically significant, but I, I, yeah, I think there's definitely... And I think that's the thing, that it's incredibly hard to unpick all of this, because as we say, it's like the culture is set up in a particular way, and there's other external pressures and internal pressures, and the system is very rigid, and it kind of reinforces the status quo. So it's, there's all of these things going on at once. But the, the positive thing that I was going to talk about is um, incredible female role models and peer support that I've had. And I think maybe this is from being in a psychology department where there are more women, certainly at my career level, and slightly higher and slightly lower. And I found that to be incredibly valuable for me in my career. The first paper I ever published had an entirely female author list. And that wasn't intentional, it's just how it happened. But I'm really, it's one of the papers I'm really proud of. It's like proper hardcore stats and it's really <laughs> good. It's, uh, yeah, um, it's, it's something that I'm really proud of. And I'm really proud that my first paper was with all, all women as well. And, Having said that as well, I've had some incredible sort of male mentors as well, and I think that's really important to acknowledge. And there's been, certainly my boss when I was doing my postdoc was incredibly supportive and very mindful of gender bias as well. So he was a professor and he would get all sorts of invitations to do things like peer review or go and give talks or all of this kind of thing. 
when he was thinking when he was planning to write a grant, he would always think of ways that he could include people who worked for him, and particularly women who worked for him. So if he couldn't go and give a talk, he'd sort of suggest one of us to go and do it. When if he couldn't do a peer review, I mean it works well for him as well because you get sent a lot of papers to peer review. Um, so he would get some of us to do the peer reviews for him, and that was something that we could then add to our CVs. We got on the list and we would start to get sort of uh, called upon ourselves. And I think because of that, I've, I got onto the editorial board of a journal really quite quickly in terms of my career stage, and that was largely, I think, because of the support from him and the encouragement from him. So I think... So there are positive stories as well, I don't want this to be one big rant and there are and the thing that the big message I think is that there have been enormous improvements but there's just a, still further to go but to move on so let's cover a broad range of issues before we start really digging down to some of these um so Ginny you've got a different story to tell when it comes to not just the issues about being a woman doing science but other aspects of your life that affect your ability to do your job tell us a little bit about yeah that. so um i have a chronic illness i've had um chronic fatigue syndrome or me for nine years now um and i think just as we're talking about accessibility and diversity and things it's it's worth always thinking about other aspects that maybe don't get thought about so much um i'm freelance and that's worked really well for me but it has meant that kind of building my career has been perhaps a bit slower than it would have been and perhaps a bit more challenging, particularly with things like networking being so important. And I think it is in academic circles as well. There's this kind of expectation that you'll go to a conference and then you'll go out for dinner and you'll go out for drinks and there'll be these networking sessions where you have to stand and talk to people for hours in loud environments, which can be really difficult um, for people with disabilities of a whole range of types. Um, so... Yeah, I think it's just it's just kind of being aware of those kind of things and thinking about whether there are things that can be done to make make it easier to make science and everything more open. Um, and I mean, things like Twitter have been amazing for me because I've been able to network with people all around the country without having to leave my sitting room. Um, and I think there's a lot more that can be done with kind of online networks with making seminars and things available online so that people who can't get to them can still be involved um, and the kind of the improvements in things things like skyping which used to be really unreliable and now actually is pretty good and all of those kind of systems i think are are making things easier but yeah just something to kind of be aware of when we're talking about all the kind of inclusivity and diversity well, the thing issues. is that, that makes it better for everyone right it's not yeah. just as if there's a special group that benefits from that if you put those things in place Totally. And coming back to women and you know, issues with caring and families mm -hmm. yeah. and stuff, sometimes you might not be able to get physically to a conference if you've got a young baby or if you've got a, an elderly parent you're looking after. But if you could engage with it in some way online or um, in other ways, it might kind of help open it up. I think Imperial College well. um, uh, had something recently where they had some kind of project, very realistic projection system so they could have a lecture by someone in America in the Imperial Business School, Imperial College Business School. And, and I thought that, that's good for lots of reasons, right? <coughs> First of all, it's good, yeah, because of the carbon footprint. Uh, secondly, it's good because it, apparently it was, it was realistic enough that the people who were speaking could see the audience, they could you know, get some sense of the reaction, they could feel that they were talking to a room. Um, and so, there was, so it wasn't just a Skype thing, it, it mm -hmm. was a much more realistic interactive experience. 
um, which sounds like sort of business jargon I hate using. I feel like I feel slightly <laughs> dirty now I've said that. Um, uh, but it also meant that you could have, you could potentially have speakers who maybe weren't in a position to travel for lots of reasons. And, and that sort of thing, and that benefits everybody. So there's all kinds of things. Um, I'm going to have my rant now, and I hope that will lead us on to a sort of discussion of where, what needs to be done um, and how to do it. Because my rant is, and this one is a rant, <laughs> uh, is that um, we see, and this it picks up, so I think Jess Wade spoke uh, here at Manchester uh, earlier this week, and um, this is almost certainly one of the things she said, I think, because she tweeted about it earlier today. Um, and it is that we, hear, we get a lot of, um, you know, big organisations saying, oh, we're going to fund diversity schemes, we're going to fund someone to go and encourage uh, young girls to apply to be scientists, we're going to fund all these things that... Um, inspire women to do science and what they're not saying is we are going to fund the hard bit we're going to fund um, improving conditions for people already in the system we're going to improve education for everybody we're going to improve um, what it's like to do that job we are going to change our culture there's a lot of effort I think put into going oh we're going to change other people it's the if we just change the women it'll be fine. Uh, that's the problem. Send, pay some money to someone and tell, you know, inspire them, like, tell them to be assertive. Just fix them, right? <laughs> and then we're going to sit here in our ivory tower and wait for the fixed people to come to us. Thank you very much. You know, if, it, if this wasn't a podcast, I would be using very rude words at this point. <laughs> uh, and, and actually, the, I think the real problem is that what needs funding is far harder and it is changing our systems. It's not changing somebody else who wants to come into the system, it's about changing the system. And that means changing the way um, the normal working day. So I'm very lucky I work in a department, uh, which is brilliant. My department, the Department of Mechanical Engineering at UCL, genuinely tries on this stuff. And it's very noticeable that the, the people who leave work um, at four o'clock to pick up their kids are mostly men. Uh, and like everyone else who does that, you know, they catch up with a couple of hours later on in the evening. They manage their time, but the men, you know, they get to benefit from the system as well. So, so there's the first thing about changing working culture, which is a hard thing to do. Um, there's also about changing risk, you know, reward systems, like we've already mentioned. You know, if you if you say success is only me, you know meeting these very specific targets, um, you know, big shiny thing. Let's have a big shiny thing over here. There was a um, UCL earlier this week assembled a they got a load of women to within the university to say you know to answer some questions for international women's day good for them fine first question was what is your proudest achievement and i'm like look that's just propagating the problem right <laughs> who makes lists men right that's the culture that you have to have a list of your top 10 things and that's a generalization in lots of ways and i recognize that but within the culture the point is that even built into the question there's an assumption that what matters is big shiny things and that you will have a list of your top 10. And I reject that assumption. Um, I think I said it nicely. Very <laughs> <laughs> no, assertive. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so my rant is that the people who want to fix the problem don't want to fix the internal problem. They want to fit the, fix the external problem so that they don't have to change. And for an organisation to really accept that it... Ha I mean, it's a hard thing to do. Let's not... Um, Let's not underestimate the scale of this challenge, that changing these things requires um, not only changing the system, it also requires changing a system which is currently inhabited by people who did well from the current system. So I have met many professors, for example, who 
well, same obviously all, we all work evenings and weekends um, and, and that's just normal. And you're like, well, who does your laundry, love? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is sort of assumption. And, you know, it's, they've almost always got a wife at home who does their laundry, doesn't say much, does their laundry. You know, these women who are under, unseen, but make the system work. While the flakes ones around, you know, obviously he can work because he can, like not everyone can. So the problem is the system is populated by the people who survived within that system. Um, but I think there is a lot of pressure and I actually see, I'm actually relatively optimistic because what I find now is that four, four or five years ago it was a lot harder to say the slightly controversial things. And now we've got past some of the obvious things and it's becoming a lot easier to say, well at least whether they listen, that's another question. But at least to say, you know, the, you are putting your money into the easy thing. What you need to do is put your emotional effort into the hard thing. Mm-hmm. And this is, it has to be led by the funders. I'm going to get it from a soapbox in a minute. But UKRI, that's the new um, sort of academic funding, the sort of umbrella for UK academic research funding. That's where the responsibility, some of the responsibility lies. A lot of the, because they could, money talks. And if the funders say it, it will happen. And so, so I just wondered, you know, we, maybe we should, because we want to talk about the good things and the solutions and, you know, because a lot of things are very positive. And have you, are the things that you've seen work or you can see improving, where, where, is, the, where is the thing that could happen that is happening or what needs to happen? To Because we're assuming we want equality of opportunity and we're assuming that we don't see it. So, what, what, how, what, you know, what could happen to make all this better? I think your point about... Um kind of what's happening at home and that being really important is is a really important step as well that more men doing the school pickup more men taking paternity leave that becoming normal will then kind of readdress the balance as well because there won't be that thing of oh well the women haven't got as many high level things because they've had to go home and pick up the kids and they can't work all the time and that sort of thing. So if we can redress the balance there, maybe starting with that, that's something that any man who wants to help can do. They and that's why I know a lot of men who want to and help want, raise their kids. Exactly, exactly. But they feel they can actually, and it's interesting because the problem comes the other way around, I think. Yes, men feel, they feel it's they're not. like, yes, well, I could do it, but I don't see any other men doing it, so it's not or okay. Or the companies don't offer the same paternity leave that they do maternity <laughs> leave. Because um, my partner Nine is months versus two weeks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My partner's an engineer, and his company are pretty good. They're quite progressive. They offer, I think, it's five weeks paternity leave, uh, paid. So, but his boss did recently take three months off unpaid because to swap with his wife um, to look after the kids for a while. So, I think it is improving. But I think when things like that become more equal, then the stuff in science will sort of start equaling out more naturally. And it does happen in other countries. I've got a colleague that I worked with uh, very closely over the summer on an expedition uh, who works in Sweden. And he he came back from the expedition. There's a lot of intense preparation to go. And he's just gone on a year's paternity leave. Um, And that's it. He's, He's not answering his emails, his academic emails, for a year. And, and you also won't just have, done it. There we go. You won't have the issue of um, that. I don't know if any of you have have faced, but I've certainly heard about of people thinking it's risky to hire a young woman because oh well, we might just train her up and then she'll go off for a year and have a baby. If it became just as risky to hire a young man, then that problem solved. Away, yeah. So I, I think we're meant to be the risk takers. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about those kind of risks is that they are so difficult to pin down. If you get overlooked for a job, 
how on earth could you say whether it's because you're a woman or because you're a um, minority of some kind or another? It's really difficult to pin that down, and yet the numbers kind of tell the story. But each individual case, how, you like you don't necessarily know whether you've been discriminated against. No, because it would be illegal to yeah. do it. But I have got a more positive take mm. on that because that was my experience. Was um, I, I, I'd got to a crossroads in my career and thought, I can't keep doing these short-term postdoc jobs. So I've got a year to try and really see if I can get a lectureship. And I got pregnant. That was a bit of a shock. And I had an interview at Manchester University <laughs> for a lectureship. Um, and I was four months pregnant. So I just told them, and I thought, well, that's that then, isn't it? I've completely shot myself in the foot. And do you know what? They didn't care. They offered me the job. Good. They delayed my start date until after I'd worked out my maternity leave. So it can be fine, and they absolutely knew it. It's it a can, little bit of a it challenge. Can be, but I think <laughs> if you were going for a two year postdoc, they I, wouldn't, they, because the, but, the money tends to be... So I, I was actually in the middle of a two-year postdoc, and, and my, we'd, we'd written a grant together, my old boss, um, and it didn't get funded, so I was off doing another job, and then it got funded. They said, you know what, we've got the money. And so I said, Simon, I'm pregnant, and he went, it's fine, I'd rather have you for six months, and I know you're going off for interviews in Manchester, I'd rather have you for six months than not at all. So he bucked the trend there That's as well. That's brilliant, yeah. Really it doesn't always happen, yeah. though. I do get that. Um, and, yeah, so, 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 you know, when it comes to... There's a lot of... One of the dangers, I think, about talking about a lot of these things is that I don't want to create a culture of victimhood where we tell the young women who are coming through the system, oh, well, you're going to be a victim, right? Uh, I don't think that's helpful, and I think there's lots of reasons it isn't true. Um, and so I don't want to give the impression that you know, you enter the science and there's all these serious problems and you get squashed all the time and you're, you know, no one listens to you and all of this stuff. I think, so my experience is that I have, my personal experience is that I have come across um, the occasional sexist comment. I've definitely had some mansplaining in my time, um, but not by anyone I work with closely, uh, not by anyone I couldn't avoid, basically. Um, and, and I have very rarely come across what I feel is over sexism and, and, sex and discrimination on that basis. Um, now, maybe I wouldn't know about some of it, but my, what I feel is that there might be the sort of hidden stuff occasionally, but I have not come across occasions where I really felt I was being put down. And that might be because I'm tall and I'm confident and I'm good at technical stuff. And you know what, when, once someone's seen you using a bandsaw, they tend not to mess with you. <laughs> um, so, or a circular saw, they're even better. Um, so, but I think, so the situation isn't awful, and I want to make that point very clear to, to especially women in the audience, that there are, the, there are serious things that can be fixed, but as a day-to-day -day thing, you know, I enjoy my scientific job, I have lots of variety, I don't feel I'm held up by the system, um, and I just wondered, maybe you could talk to your personal experiences of, how, you know, is, is it a serious problem? Is it, how Should young women thinking about going into a scientific career worry about this? Or is it a problem that we'll sort of, you know, we need to be aware of, but things are moving on? I mean, I love my job. And I'm really, like, I'm really glad I chose this career. And I think maybe it's being in psychology, but maybe it's more general that I've had some amazing, as I said before, some amazing women around me that I've never felt sort of alone or unsupported. I've always had an amazing network of men but particularly women which make going to work a joy 
And for all the things that we've said about the sort of the rigidity of the system, certainly for the type of work that I do, I know it's a bit different if you are in labs with um, various sort of things that have to be done at a particular time, but I have loads of flexibility in my job. Until a year ago, I was in a band and I would be able to go and uh, like leave work early to drive to uh, some awful venue and play a gig in the evening and come <laughs> back and like not go into work first thing because I was exhausted and, and sort of leave work early, go in late. As long as the work got done, no one minded whether you were in the office or not unless you had particular things to do. And, and even now that I'm working as a lecturer, that's still broadly true. Obviously, I, I have to turn up to where my teaching is scheduled. <laughs> that would be very bad if I didn't, and I would never dream of not doing that. But otherwise, as long as like, I'm achieving the things that I want to be achieving, I can, I can work at home, I can not work on a Tuesday if I decide I don't want to, and I can do that work on the weekend. Or, you know, I've got that flexibility, and I think that's something that academia has over other jobs that actually we should sort of talk about more because it's really great and potentially actually science has that in a lot of ways i mean because we shouldn't forget that there are other areas yeah, of science absolutely. and different ways of doing research and, and different ways of, of um, supporting science and and often because it's a job that has to get done it's less important where it happens and when it happens yeah. i mean if you're like you say if you're in a lab and your rat is about to die of starvation because you haven't fed it for a week you've probably got I mean that's one of the best things about being a physicist is things don't die if you leave them alone it's brilliant um, in fact when things start living that's when you've got a problem when you become a biologist I've got students who don't wash out the tanks because they've got a lab full of water tanks I don't yeah I don't None of that. Um, so, um, but so, so, yeah, so, the first thing, so science is quite good in, in that sense that there is innately a lot of flexibility. How about the other two? How do you find the sort of experience of, you know, this I've dreadful been, thing, woman in science? I think I've had both. I've had good and bad experiences. Um, and I've seen good and bad behaviours. So I've had some amazing male colleagues that I've worked with for a very long time, very supportive, I've got some amazing female friends and colleagues, again, it's been wonderful, but you know, one of the first PhDs I was offered was based on the fact, would I snog the supervisor? And then he was hurt because I didn't apply for the PhD. He couldn't understand why that would be an issue. Um, so, you know, I've had that kind of end, and I've seen, I've seen a, a male colleague pursuing PhD students in his lab, and actually not really getting punished for it, but it really disturbing the whole dynamics for the lab. However, I've seen the opposite, you know, so I think I've experienced a fairly wide range. So I, it can be good, it can be bad. You, see, you can see sexism, you cannot see sexism, you can see people who are being bigoted in other ways. So, And that's probably not unique to academia no, or science not. either. Yeah. It's, I think that one of the encouraging things in the past couple of years has been, I mean, the Me Too, the Me Too movement has made it a lot easier. It's not, it's not solved all the problems, it's made it a lot easier to express a lot of these things, I think. Because I think before, one of the most depressing things, so uh, my mum, who I think isn't here. Mum, are you here? No. Oh, she is, she's hiding. <laughs> she... <laughs> Everyone wave to me, mum. So uh, she, we were talking, so my mum did uh, technical and, and programming things when I, before I was born and, and afterwards and still does. And once we were talking about um, sexism in the workplace and she was telling me about her early days at Ferranti, you know, here in Manchester, and the, the treatment of computer programmers, uh, you know, of, of the treatment of the female secretaries, for example, by males, and, and it was a lot, much more sexist environment. 
And she said to me, the worst thing was that other women would say, oh, well, it happens. Mm -hmm. And there was this acceptance that, oh, well, that's what happens. And I think we are past that. We are past this. And that's such a big thing to be past the stage where it's just accepted. And there is absolutely a problem with sexual harassment not being called out. Mm -hmm. But I think it's becoming harder and harder for, for people to avoid it, actually. Ginny, what's your experience? Well, being in Psycom is a bit different, I think, because there are a lot of women doing Psycom. In fact, I would say it's, it's a female-led um, area, at least in the kind of the body of it. Perhaps when you look at the very highest levels of Psycom, the kind of most famous people people would name, they probably would still be men, a lot of them. Um, why that is, is debatable. Again, it's not very big numbers, so it's hard to know for sure whether that's just one or two very charismatic uh, physicists throwing <laughs> things out, or um, whether it's something more pervasive. But certainly there, there are an awful lot of women doing psychom jobs. Um, I have had experiences of male bosses who say didn't particularly like women standing up to them. Um, so, you know, there have been, yeah, there have, there have been those kind of incidences. Um, but, but I'd say generally, yeah, generally I've, I've been quite lucky. I think it's been, it's been pretty good. Um, again, I think if you're a woman kind of public facing and you've probably experienced this that there are a lot of people I know who um, do YouTube and those kind of things get comments about their appearance a lot, which I think, actually, Brian Cox probably gets quite a lot of comments about his appearance <laughs> as well, but I think on average... Mostly um, from Robin. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, I think... I mean, there's things like those... Um, there were the, that pair of news readers where the woman got called out for wearing a dress that she'd worn once before, and then the male newsreader wore the same outfit for a whole year and no one noticed. <laughs> so there's just stupid things like that that are still, I think, a bit more of an issue um, And I think there are things women, that are much harder to see. So you just reminded me of a, a study, maybe Susie knows more about this. I just assume that studies to do with people are things that you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it was something where somebody... Um, a load of researchers went into meetings with people with various gender ratios and uh, measured the amount of time that women spoke as opposed to the amount of time that men spoke and then asked everybody what they thought afterwards. And it turned out that both the men and the women uh, thought that men and women had been heard equally mm -hmm. if the women spent 25%, if they had 25% of the time speaking. So, so everyone in the room, if women had spoken for 25% of the meeting, even in a meeting with 50-50 men and women, everyone would come out and everyone would think that had been equal mm -hmm. because everyone's perception was that that sort of felt about right. And it's those things that I feel are really insidious because unless you have the study, who you wouldn't know. Yeah, yeah and this isn't like saying that it's men are doing this, as you say. It's that women have this experience as well. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I've had to do unconscious bias kind of training as part of... of working at a university, when you're going to be on a panel recruiting people, you have to do this training because we all have it to a greater or lesser extent for different groups, in groups and out groups. It's the way kind of human brains work and it's the way culture and society is set up. So I, it's, we all do it. So it's not saying this is bad, but it's saying, well, okay, so if we know that we all do it, what can we all, how can we all make the effort to 
push back against our own biases. I think, I think that's a really good point, actually. Getting away from this idea that being biased is bad intrinsically, because it's not something we can help. We are all biased. What we have to do is fight consciously against exactly. our unconscious biases. But the problem is when a lot of people, if you say to them, you are biased, will get very defensive. So it's kind of changing exactly. that point of view so that and we can science, all accept actually, it. Because a, part, I mean, a huge part of scientific training is trying to be as objective as possible. You'd think if anyone should be ahead on that. But it's really hard to be objective about yourself when people start saying negative things. Because, we, again, we all have a bias where we think we're better than average yeah. things. Okay. Um, <laughs> and yeah. Everyone thinks everyone they're thinks in the they're top half of attractiveness and everyone thinks that they're in the top half of... Or, of intelligence and, and like ability to drive yeah. and all sorts of things we generally we we don't believe ever that we're below average so we all think that we're less biased than average but that's another bias that we all have well, one of the things that was brilliant so, so i worked for a, a guy at scripps uh, in california who was was brilliant very sort of open to new ideas and he had to do some kind of training like that and his first reaction was to walk straight out of that and come to my office and i was his postdoc and he said have i ever done anything that would that is sexist I wouldn't know can you tell me and he really wanted to know he was like what is what am I not seeing and it, because he was so because he was like that very easily I couldn't actually think of anything and I don't think he was but that was an amazing reaction mm. to, to sit through that kind of thing and then the first response to be to go to the people who would be on the end of the problem if it existed and say is can you tell me is there a problem do I need to do better and I, that was absolutely laudable behavior I thought um, okay, so I think maybe the audience has some questions of their own. Is anyone? We've got a little bit. We've got some time now, so we can obviously keep talking about this for hours and hours and hours. Uh, but it would be nice in the print, in the in the you know, hearing from everybody. We would like to hear from the audience as well. Has anyone got a question for on any of the topics that we've covered or anything we haven't covered? So, so Melinda's got a microphone. So oh no, oh the microphone. Okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, keep okay, your hands you short. Right? <laughs> yes, I'm trying my best. My rant is microaggressions, which happen on a day-to-day -day basis. And we've talked a lot about men and what men say, etc. But these microaggressions aren't necessarily always from men. And we hear all the images you showed at the start of Pink Fluffy Women aren't just sent by men, mm -hmm. they aren't sent by both men and women. This becomes higher So this, this is a difficult issue because you're basically asking who should do the emotional labour. Uh, you can say a problem exists in society. It is your point at, the, point at the, the person perpetrating that, the microaggression, whatever it is, and say it is your problem to sort this out. You deal with it. Or you can say I am a part of a community. I want my community to get better and I am going to take on the emotional labour of helping this person 
deal with it. And, and I think that split isn't very often understood, that it, it takes that we all, you know, there's been those celebrities who get something really horrible said on Twitter, and then they go and they meet them and they talk to them and it, you know, and they have a discussion, they find out this person has all these problems. And the thing is, you can't do that with every, every you can't dig down into someone's life history every time someone does that. So, so my approach to it is to take on the emotional labour when you are able, because I do want my community to come better, to become better, and I understand that that a lot of things may not change within my lifetime, but if I can change something for somebody else, I will take on that labour. But you can't do it all the time because you go mad. So, so that's my sort of where I sit in that. that I, I try when there's time, but, and you know what, if it's someone who's a lost cause, <laughs> I can't be don't waste your energy. Uh, how about the rest of you? I think, for me, it's been something that as I've become more secure in my career, I've felt more able to speak out when people say things that aren't okay and um, also about my, my chronic illness that when I was first starting out I kept it a secret because I was worried about people not hiring me, not booking me for events because they would worry that I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, I, was, I guess I was worried about discrimination um, and so I think those of us who are now in a comfortable, secure position, or more comfortable, I'm freelance, so I'm never secure, but more comfortable and secure position have a responsibility to speak out so that the PhD students just starting out and the people at the beginning of their career don't have that work to do because they just need to kind of get by and get their foot on the ladder. Um, yeah, I don't know what you think. I think that what you were saying about you can't do everything and you can't take yeah. on all of this emotional labour is something that's really important in this kind of whole discussion about women in STEM and thinking about these initiatives to inspire women by showing the great things that women can do is that then puts an awful lot of pressure on women currently in the system and, and things like mentoring as well the more you kind of say, well, you need to be a role model because you need to inspire the next generation of people. It's saying, well, okay, well, I'll give up this amount of my time to do this, that, and the other. And then my male colleagues who don't have this pressure on them, they're writing grants and submitting papers. And, you know, the problem is going to continue if, if, if women are expected to do everything. And I'm not saying that that is the case that it is at the moment, but it's something that's really important to kind of keep an eye on because it's certainly, I know... Sort of more senior female colleagues who are absolutely exhausted from constantly being asked to do these kind of things and to mentor sort of younger career-wise people and they're saying I want to do it because I want to be helpful and supportive but I, I'm working beyond capacity. And I guess that's where we need male allies as well for, yeah. you know men who are invited to sit on a panel that is all men to say hang on a second haven't you thought about inviting this woman instead and and that kind of thing. And also, so the Athena Swan, which is a, a system for um, encouraging gender equality in, in, in academia, there's a, normally a, a group of people within any department, and it's mostly about women. Um, and so normally it's the women who sit on the Athena Swan thing and write this application. In my department, um, it is not all women. And in fact, I think there's more men than women that are in that group taking on the responsibility 
for writing this time-consuming thing. It's supposed to be gender um, balance. The writing yeah. committee. That's one of the FEMA Swan's sort of recommendations. But I don't think it always be, but works I, like it, that. You, I completely agree. And also, it's one of the things that, in, if you're going for promotion or if you're in your PDR, your sort of yearly review of your work over the last year, taking on something like writing the FEMA Swan should be equivalent to getting a decent sized grant and yet in the actual form for capturing that information it's one of the things that is kind of a, a measure of, a, of esteem that's very much down the list compared to some other things whereas it's the same if not more work and it's something that's important to the community as you say rather than a grant which is important to the individual or their particular research group. Sweeney, just on the microaggressions, have you got anything to add? To I, I think what you said is very true and I think it's, it's about picking the battles and, and sort of weighing up as well, thinking, you know, this isn't my best friend, is this one I'm just going to let ride because actually who really cares what they think about me? Or is it something that I really do need to address because this is going to really affect, you know, my students or, or something and something I really care about? So it's picking which ones, but pausing and perhaps thinking, giving yourself a chance to think, how are you going to do it, whether it's taking them to one side later and, and talking to them face to face never email never email them because that could be so taken out, <laughs> out, of, out of context um, and the the other thing is it does it need to be you that does it and sometimes you can achieve a lot by working around so getting other allies to help do it for you so that you don't become the voice in that meeting that's always going no don't do it like this because then everybody stops listening to you. So I think there's a few different things that I try. And there's also a very important role for senior people in there because the, one of the most effective things, one of the things that people hide behind is that they say, oh, well, I've never seen anyone else do it. So for senior people, if there are any in this room or if there are any listening, it is more important for you than anyone else that you take the stand because that gives everyone else below you in the system permission to behave well. And if you've seen a courageous stance by someone higher up the system, it makes it obvious that everyone else is expected to do it and an example of that is CERN for example this week the, that yeah. um, uh, you know our lovely physicist who uh, said some very stupid indefensible and offensive things about the ability of female physicists in a public venue I mean he wasn't hiding it um, and and after an internal you know internal consideration of this CERN have, have just said right well we're not having anything to do with you anymore and that's a top level decision that sends a very strong message down the food chain um, so I think that's the thing where if you've got, you know, there is a responsibility and leadership to, to demonstrate. And even when you do it locally, you know, on any issue, if you are visible in behaving well, you give other people permission to, to do the same thing. I think having allies is a really, really important point as well. So it wasn't really a microaggression, but once at a conference dinner, a professor who I didn't know uh, made a really sort of unpleasant comment about my bum. Um, <laughs> And uh, I was too shocked at the time to say anything about it. Um, but my, my boss, who is a male professor as well, was there as well. And he came over to me after it happened and said, and firstly, apologised for not saying anything at the time. And then secondly, uh, told me that he was going to send this man an email the next morning and, and, and sort of say... And, and he, copied, he blind copied me in on the email and I saw what he wrote and it was very kind of kind to this person sort of saying people in our position shouldn't talk to to young female academics like that because mm -hmm. it's 
is massively inappropriate and, and um, gives the wrong impression. And, and this person then replied to say that actually the conference dinner doesn't count as an academic environment. <laughs> and that um, he was just paying me a compliment. Uh, but even so, it felt really powerful for him to stand up for me like that in a way that I would not have done anything about that situation. But it was, it was. Not, I mean, I was going to say it was nice to know that he got my back. But given what the quote was, I think that's inappropriate. But um, yeah, it felt really good to be supported. I think it's also really important not to beat yourself up too much if you do let some of them slide, because sometimes you are just too shocked at the time. You're just a bit like, did you just? say what I think and then by the time you've kind of recovered it's gone and afterwards you're going oh I really wish I'd said this and this and but yeah we almost need a checklist because the list of things we think we should have said afterwards right we need to start compiling a list and learn it so that when and this is a rare occurrence but it does feel as though it would be so satisfying to get the repost right first time. <laughs> <laughs> not sure if we've really done it. Um, any other questions from the audience where are the hands up somewhere when we were having yeah down the front here. Um, I'm just wondering whether, in your experience, when you bring something, um, something else to, to the STEM subjects, you've mentioned about changing culture, but I'm just wondering, in, in activity of science itself, um, you know, my feeling is obviously that science is missing out on the whole load um, by not being diverse in, in, in the workforce. I'd be interested to know what your experience of that is. When it comes to science and engineering, so I haven't read it yet, but... Um, uh, book that's just been Invisible Women? Caroline yeah. Criado Perez yeah. came brilliant. out last week, I think, and it is, I should have looked this up. What's it called? Invisible, Invisible Women? Invisible yeah. Women, that's it. it and so and it's all about how, I'm saying this confidently, I can't remember the title, um, <laughs> but it's, all, it's about how basically the world has been designed for, by men, for, you know, for men. And it highlights all these ways where, you know, chairs don't fit people and things are just inappropriate and you know and the men have never noticed because there were no women in the room to say actually I'm not six foot two I can't I'm, reach I'm five that. foot two <laughs> it doesn't fit there's some brilliant examples of that so apparently if men and women are in a car crash women are about 47 percent more likely to get worse injuries because the seat belts and all the seats have been designed for men and um, but there's also diversity issues apparently there was some facial recognition software mm. that was set up and it didn't know how to tell the difference between different black people. It thought all black people looked the same. So it, not only do you need women, you, you need, need diversity. diversity. Yeah. And yeah. I think there was an AI tool that was used by Google for recruitment that, that recruited against women. So it, it was kind of diversifying the wrong way. So science yeah. is worse if we don't have a mixture. The problem with AI is it's what you use for your training set. So there was one that, it might be that one that you were talking about where they tried to sort of predict who would be given grants or, oh no, it was, it was releasing prisoners from, oh. from jail, I think they were doing. And basically the computer learnt that if you were black, you were less likely to get parole because that was a regular thing that had happened and what computers are very good at is extracting those regularities. Just looking at patterns. So, Actually, and women do do yeah. things differently. I think there's lots of ways in science itself that are both ways of doing things. And, and so it's not just, you know, engineering, which is what we were really talking about, but the ideas that get um, done and how it's done. So in my own lab, so I, I go to see, I work on ships, and um, people nick your screwdrivers on the ship, right? So I thought, like, I went a few years ago, um, 
was it like two or three expeditions ago, I, 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 how am I going to label? I want to label my screwdrivers. Nail varnish, right? <laughs> Cheap enamel paint, comes in all kinds of colours. Turns out when you paint your screwdrivers pink, nobody nicks them. <laughs> and um, so now all everything in my lab, which is, you know, open with other people's labs, and so students do borrow things. I know they've borrowed things because I'm the only one that's got blue blobs on, mm -hmm. on the thing. And you know what? The technicians in the workshop have started copying me. And they, they're now labelling all their screwdrivers with, with blue nail varnish. Um, so there's little things as well. It's not just the, the big things. And I, so I, I think the, you know, the implication of your question is that a different perspective also gives you different things to study. Um, so there's no question, like Sheena said, that uh, you want what you need in, to make science effective is a diversity of <coughs> perspectives. Mm -hmm. And how are you going to have that if you haven't got a diversity of people? Beeping thing didn't like it very much. <laughs> diversity of people. So I think science absolutely does get done differently. Um, and also, I think there's also a lot of research showing that um, the most effective teams are mixed mm, yeah. gender teams, not all male, not all female, but mixed gender. So, so there's lots of very clear, even if you're talking to a bean counter who only cares about what goes into the machine and what comes out the other side, there's, it's very uh, easily defensible to say you need Yeah, there's team. lots of research into it, and notwithstanding the sort of 25% talking uh, that is seen as equal, but there is lots of research, as you say, that shows that if you've got a diverse group in a room, the conversation is better or is more productive than if you've got a very homogenous group in a room. Mm -hmm. Any more questions? We had some more at the back. So, <laughs> Trent was doing some nuts. <laughs> Disturbing Look at him. Trent, Rob. <laughs> Multitasking. So imposter syndrome, because it's not necessarily a phrase everyone will be familiar with, is this idea that people carry around with them a secret fear they're going to be found out because they're not really where they are because they're supposed to be. It's just that no one's really noticed that they're actually not good enough. And this is a very prevalent thing. And people like Athene Donald, who's a professor of physics uh, at Cambridge, have written about this uh, very eloquently and, and that this fear doesn't ever quite go away. Uh, but it's a valid, it's a good question because in the nature of women speaking more about things, we have heard this from women, but maybe the men just haven't said it. What, 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 what do all of you think about that? Every man I've ever asked about it has said that he experiences it. Mm -hmm. So I think it is a thing that everyone to a greater or lesser extent experiences, but that doesn't mean that it's not more of a problem for women. I don't know. I don't know if there's been any good studies looking I at it because it's a really gnarly thing to get at. There have, I'm pretty sure, been studies that have said that if given a job description where you fit seven out of ten of the criteria, men will apply yeah. thinking, oh, seven out of ten, that's pretty good. Women will tend not to apply thinking, oh, I can't do three of them, I shouldn't even bother, which does suggest that, and I wonder if it's that in men, I feel like in boys and men, confidence and even leaning into arrogance is celebrated much more than it is for women um, and girls, and perhaps that's changing, and hopefully it is, but I it wonder... It to be their way of dealing with it, right? Because what you have, feeling it is one thing, but how mm, you, respond, how to you it, respond to it, that's, that's true. probably where the arrogance that is a good comes point. in. Because yeah. we, we all, we've seen a lot of, I've yeah. seen a lot of unpleasant people who are both male and female, um, <laughs> but the, they, 
if they are inclined to deal with that with, by being aggressive and by putting other people down, that's one way of dealing with that insecurity, whereas mm. someone else might just take themselves away to a corner. So, so the problem can be expressed in lots of different ways. And I think one of the important, so my, um, I've said this before and I'll keep saying it, that women are not gonna get career equality, women are not going to get career equality until men get emotional equality. And, and that's this, that's, you know, how it's much harder to deal with not having emotional equality because we're not having that conversation. It started recently in the context of mental health, mm -hmm. but actually it's not a mental health thing. It leads to problems with mental health, but, but there's a bigger thing there. And, and it I goes right down to babies. I mean, from even before babies are born, people start interacting with male children differently to how they interact with female children. And if you present someone with a baby dressed in gender neutral clothing and tell them it's a boy, they will interact with it in a more boisterous way. They will encourage more physical play. Um, whereas girls, they'll talk to them more. And that's bad for both sexes because we need boys to be able to talk about their feelings and not bottle things up and end up having mental health problems. And we need girls to have, have the confidence and, and we just need yeah people to not be pushed in either direction to be sort of And yet it's very allowed. hard, isn't it? So but it's really hard. I wanted to, in an, in an, um, I must have had too much time on my hands at some point, but some friends of mine had a baby and I thought, oh, I'll knit a blanket for the baby. So I went out looking for the sort of wool that you knit blankets for babies with, right? It comes in blue or pink. <laughs> and I went and I was like, but I want other colours. And they were like, oh. Oh, yeah, there are other colours. There are, no, God, would you want blue or pink? And I was like, no. So, I, and so then I knitted this thing. I found some, and it was sort of rainbow coloured. And then I got, I sort of was, wasn't really paying attention. And you know when you knit, maybe you don't know. Um, but, you know, you have to pay attention to ha things being narrow and wider. Anyway, it was a pentagon, and it was lots of colours. <laughs> and then my friends went on to have two other children, and all of them have been brought up with this pentagon-shaped, odd-coloured blanket, <laughs> which is completely gender-neutral, because it's bonkers. But even little things like that, you know. And then you start overthinking it, because um, my sister-in-law is pregnant at the moment, and she told me it's a boy, so then I was going to crochet something, um, and she really likes blue, but I was like, now I don't want to make it in blue because I'm going to feel like I'm gendering it. And blue is a perfectly good colour and so is pink, but you kind of feel like they've got these... these you know what I would love? Yeah. I would love a, um, to see... Someone has the computer skills to do this. I don't, and I don't have the time. But, I would, you know, with International Women's Day today, it would be a really interesting study to look at all the images that have been put online today and see whether there is systematically any more pink <laughs> than on any other day of the year. Because I think there might be. But the association is so strong. Any any uh, computer scientists listening to the podcast? <laughs> the Cosmic Shambles Network would love that study. I'll write a blog on it, Trent, if it happens. <laughs> uh, any, uh, we've got probably time for one or two more quick questions. Anyone got anything else they'd like to ask?
So that's, it's a long-term issue, um, and I would say that the issue is in taking responsibility for training. Because the one thing I have seen, and I've seen it in TV as well as, actually more in TV and in the media than in academia, is women promoted when they're not ready for it, and then what happens is they fail. Because they're not giving enough support, um, they're pushed up to do a job they can't do, they're terrified about it, they know that they're a woman, they've been given this opportunity, they should make the most of it, and they haven't been provided with a foundation to do it. And what should have happened was that they were given enough training that they got there by, they, that they rose, they didn't have to be pushed up, although, you know, you, you can argue for doing that, but the problem was, you, what you can't do is promote women to jobs that they are not qualified to do yet. What you can do is train them to do those jobs. And so I think the solution to that is a longer term thing. And there was a quote I was just scribbling while you were um, saying that, and I, I'm not sure who said it. I saw it on a tweet earlier today. It was one of the UK industry person said it. It said, train your employees so that they're good enough to leave, but treat them well enough that they want to stay. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it is in companies taking on responsibility for training. And of course, the problem with that, especially in industries like FinTech and the sort of um, new startup culture is that people come and they go. And there's very little incentive to train, but actually the solution to that problem is taking on the responsibility for training. And then that's your incentive to treat your workforce well, because if you treat them well, they will stay. So that would be my take on that. I, I, think, I think also it's, it's about having diverse panels that will look at these promotion things in a more balanced way and they're, they're aware of their inherent biases. And I, and I do wonder if one of the other issues that we have is that people are so private about their salaries in countries where it's published they don't have such issues so if you know somebody i mean i think maybe this is why we're seeing a lot of this happening with the bbc just now is because we're starting to see salaries and people are going hang on we're doing the same job we're, we're, we're working the same program you're getting paid twice as much as me that at least gets out there in the open because if you don't know your colleague gets paid more than you then you won't necessarily want to create an issue about it and I think maybe that could be one of the issues. And one of the most interesting things about those statistics, so this is the gender pay gap survey which all companies that have more than 250 employees have to do and what was interesting about that is it splits pay and bonuses and that was the interesting bit for me. Firstly because I didn't know anybody in academia got a bonus, right? Turns out in some universities that's normal, it's mostly the men who know about it. Um, but Pay is one thing, but splitting off bonus, that's another thing, because that's a kind of hidden, that's, and it, even if pay is obvious because of someone's level, the bonus is not necessarily, and there's another whole, you know, it's, it's a right for exploitation. So like Sheena said, being perfectly open, and it does happen again in Sweden, everyone's salaries are public. But pay isn't even that obvious anyway, so certainly when you get a job, you can negotiate what level, so... A certain job is on a band but that within that band there are lots of different points salary points to start on and you can negotiate what point along that band that you start on by saying well I've got these skills and if you want me then I want to be bumped up a point or two and there's research to suggest that men are far more likely to push for being bumped up two or maybe three points where women will be far less likely to do that and I've heard the horror stories of, uh, of, of men being sort of said, well, obviously you'll want to put yourself up a few points, whereas women applying for similar jobs 
getting none of that and sort of told, well, we might be able to push to one kind of thing. So even among jobs that are the same, you can still have that disparity by being more assertive and saying, I want to be moved up to a certain point. And the responsibility for that shouldn't be on the employee. That's the other thing that I've been thinking about this week quite a lot, is that there's all this, oh, well, women should put themselves forward for promotion and women's... And again, it's that, it's somebody else's problem. Actually, if you have an institution that has a proper pay review system that someone external is looking at and saying, well, what? hang on, why is it that these two people are doing the same job and the woman is paid less? So an institution can put a proper, tran- properly transparent pay review in and make it their responsibility to check for equality, not the employees. I think, um, I think the other thing to think about is some of the work that tends to fall to women is valued less than work that tends to fall to men. So you mes- mentioned office managers they don't necessarily always get paid as much and that, if, and that tends to be a more kind of female role. And places that don't have a proper office manager, there's often someone in the office who will take on those kind of roles and probably do that unpaid and perhaps miss out on promotions because they're spending their time doing that rather than something else. And I think psychoms is another one that um, academics who do a lot of psychom, if anything, that can damage yeah. their career. And that is something, for some reason, more women tend to do. And whether that is because... So some people would say, oh, well, the women are choosing to do those things. They know that they're not going to get promoted for them. But actually, there are some really interesting statistics that showed that when um, computers were first invented, the programmers were women. Um, it was seen as kind of repetitive work that didn't you didn't need to you know be a genius to do it. So oh we'll let the we'll let the secretaries do the computer programming. And back then it wasn't a well-paid well, job. Computer was a person. Exactly yeah, a computer was a person who did maths, and then it went on to you had the punch cards and and it was women's work and it wasn't very well paid. And if you plot the number of men in computer programming against the pay or average pay of a computer programmer, you get this lovely curve. (laughs) So it does seem like when something becomes a man's job, it's somehow valued more. Uh, My sister once pointed out that when uh, male chefs started turning up in the kitchen, all the the cookery things Mm. suddenly started being brushed steel (laughs) instead of plastic. (laughs) Um, Okay, we are going to have to finish there. Uh, But just before we go, I would like to remind you that obviously we are here because of the awesome Cosmic Shambles Network. And if you like this, they have lots of stuff on there. They have blogs and podcasts and all of us are on there doing things and saying things. And they also do live shows. So check out the Cosmic Shambles Network, uh, which is there on the screen. Uh, They've put out an International Women's Day podcast today that's got Julia Shaw and Gina Ripplin talking about um, lots of these same issues, I'm sure. Um, So thank you all for coming. Please thank our three three fabulous panelists. Thank you very much for listening. Remember, tickets for Nine Lessons in Manchester and London are on sale now. You can support the show by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, pledging at patreon.com slash bookshambles and just telling everyone and anyone that you listen and enjoy the show. We'll be back soon with more episodes of both Science Shambles and Book Shambles and Brain Yapping as well and all the other stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. 